Hello friends, long time no see. Uh, sponsor of the day is Daku Aquatics. Do you like homebred neocardinia shrimp, dwarf cichlids like black rams, and a huge assortment of rare and easy to keep plants? Then check out my man Daku at dakuaquatics.com. This guy, he is a hardcore hobbyist. Uh, he turned his passion into a business and supplies high quality shrimp, fish, and plants that you can get on your hands. Uh, don't believe me? Please check out the website. See for yourself. He even posts on his own Instagram with 10,000 followers. So you can see him at Instagram.com slash Daku Aquatics. Right now, go to DakuAquatics.com and you can take advantage of the 10% off the entire store with promo code Aquarium, guys. All one word. One more note before the show is the guest has requested that uh, you consider reaching out to kidney.org slash donation is the national kidney foundation our guest is uh, fighting his own kidney problems and wants to uh, divert attention to the wonderful cause guys glad to be back in the podcast chair got a lot of people asking uh, what's going on and life man i had a kid multiple rounds of covid uh jimmy's been working like i don't know eight days a week I had some horrible hand, mouth, and foot disease for a while, and I'm just glad to get back in the in the zone, get more podcast episodes out, and hopefully we can get uh, more on a more regular basis. Uh, until then, enjoy this episode, and uh, let's kick that podcast. He's got to hold together, Rob, just for 30 seconds, man. 30, no, not 30 seconds. We got to hold the whole podcast together. <laughs> I am your host, Rob Zolson. Hey, I'm Jim Colby. And I'm Adam el And today we are blessed to have a true piranha expert with us, Frank Magianis. Did I, did I pronounce that correctly? Close enough. Magianis. I'm never going to get that correct. Finally, somebody got it right. It was, <laughs> it was yeah, Frank. I have a basic bitch last name, so you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> Well, let's just stick with Frank. <laughs> so Frank, generally we go into different news, but I, I want to spend all our time with you today. So I have been introduced to you through uh, our friend Alexander Williamson through the secret history living in our aquarium. And when he says that I get the foremost expert on piranha, I don't think that he's joking. So give us a little bit about you, Frank. Where, where are you from? Uh, why, why piranha? Okay, well, I'm from Roseburg, Oregon, and I was originally from California. And when I moved up to Roseburg in 1992, I, I carried a couple of piranhas with me that I that I kept as pets. And as it turned out, they're illegal in both states, Oregon and California. You're kidding? So I no, they are they're illegal. So I went ahead and I, I brought them into Oregon, and uh, a snitch turned me in, and I had the state police knocking on my door. And I invite. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> that's why you don't let anybody know what you have. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I wasn't not going to pretend I didn't have them. But anyway, I invited the gentleman in, and the, I showed him where the fish were at, and, and they started asking me questions, and I started answering their questions, and gave them some little extra information. And they asked, "Well, you're really familiar with them?" And I said, "Yeah, I've been." 
at that time I've been studying for about 50 years. I said, oh, and he said, well, the, the, this piranha over here looks different from the one over here. I said, well, that's because they're two different species. And then I went in to explain it to them what the, what the species differences were. So in the end, they let me keep the fish, but with the condition that, uh, uh, I'd have to return it, return it to them at the department of fish and wildlife. Once the department asked for them, I said, yeah, that's no problem. And in the meantime, they told me to talk with the, uh, state representative about, see about getting them legalized. I said, well, I can do that. So, which is what I did. But before all that happened, I went to court and I argued on behalf of the fish, telling the judge Laswell that we have two different species here. One is covered by Oregon law and the other one is not. And the fish and wildlife guy stood up and says, well, you know, a fish by any other name is still a fish, you know? And I said, well, that's not how it works. And so I gave them some history on, on the species names, the common names, so on and so forth. And by the time it was all over, uh, the judge gave me back the other species that was not recognized as a piranha. Yeah. And, uh, the fish and wildlife had to promise that the real piranha would be donated to the Steinhardt aquarium where they would take care of it in San Francisco. So I agreed to that because I knew the guy there at the Steinhardt friend of mine, biologist, Frank Glennon was going to be the one to take care of it. So about a couple, about about a month later, I called up Frank and I said, Hey Frank, how did that piranha doing, doing over there that you got from me? And he said, well, we never got it. I said, what do you mean you never got it? And he said, well, the fish and wildlife people called us and said they were going to deliver it to us. So I had a man waiting for it at the airport and he was there all day and the fish never showed up. So I called up Dave Loomis, who was the biologist who had told the judge that he was going to send it to San Francisco. And he said, well, it, it died in route. I said, what do you mean it died in route? Yeah, it, it died in route. And, uh, so we just, we just got rid of the body afterwards. And I said, well, you know, Frank Lennon had the fish waiting for the fish over there at the airport almost the entire day. He had a man waiting for it and never showed up and you guys never bothered to let him know. And he said, well, we're sorry. I said, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to be sorry. And I hung up the phone on him. And, uh, from there I went ahead and called the state representative and told him about what had happened. And I said, let's see if we can change Oregon law. Well, they had me testify about four months, five months later at the house natural resources. I, I went in there, you know, just with myself, no papers or anything. And at the time, Kate Brown, who is now the Oregon governor was a lawyer for the fish and wildlife division. So I went in there and I, and I testified. Well, she first, I introduced myself and then she, she introduced herself. And then she went on her spiel about how goldfish were invading the state of Oregon. And I got to think of goldfish. We're talking about piranhas here. So, so as it turned out, when it was my turn to speak, I went ahead and I gave the state representatives that were there an entire scientific history on the piranhas and how it's been turned into a gigantic myth of how horrible they were. So somewhere between halfway through the meeting, they asked Kate Brown some additional questions about piranhas. He said, well, no, I'm going to defer to Mr. Magallanes to answer the questions. So two hours later, the meeting was over and I walked out of there and the, the newspaper people were waiting for me. I couldn't believe there were that many newspaper people there. And they, they started asking if they could have my notes. I said, I don't have any notes. From there, I went home about two weeks later, they notified me that the piranhas were legalized in Oregon. Hell yeah. When did this happen? Yeah. Yeah, this was 1995. 1995, and now yeah. Oregon doesn't have any problems with goldfish. So not <laughs> not only are you one of the one of the better experts on prana, but you're also a gangster. <laughs> yes. Well, you see, originally the Oregon law was created because they were following California, and both right. California and Oregon, 
when when they found piranhas in their water, they weren't piranhas; they were pacus from the species of piaractus. Yeah. Right? They're 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 like distant cousins of the piranhas, vegetarian nutcrackers. They're sold yeah, as yeah. vegetarian piranha, which is terrible. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so th- that's how the laws were originally created was to cover them. And the way they wrote the laws, they were so vague in that they were calling everything piranha, and there was no there was no scientific name attached to the the state law. So. It was basically a pretty easy uh, argument to, to get it overturned. Quick question, Frank. Uh, you had the two types of piranha. Which ones were okay in Oregon? Which one was not? What for, in Oregon? Yes. You said yeah, one, well, they're they're all they're all legal now. Okay, but but, but back then, back then you said that one was illegal and one was not. Okay, no, they were all the illegal back then. Okay, all you, of, you just happened to argue your way out of one species. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. you're just yeah. a gentleman. Yeah, because see, see the the way the Oregon law was written, if I remember correctly, it said that uh, all species under the the common name piranha were were illegal or something like that. I forget. There was some kind of a vague way they had it written. I don't remember exactly how it was done. But w- when I went in there, I I was able to convince the judge that Pygocentris consisted of three species, and none of them were covered under Oregon law. Well, you said before that you were even at that time in. Was it, you said 96 that, that this law passed? In 95. 95 this law passed? Yes. So what yeah. got you into this hobby? Well, I had to go back to 1957. Mostly you probably weren't even alive then, but back in 1957, I my father was uh, was reading a comic strip and he happened to stop at one that was called The Phantom, The Ghost Who Walks. And and I sat, sat down next to him and he was reading the comic to me. And then I noticed there was a fish jumping out of the water and the phantom said, piranha. And his son, you know, asked him what that is. Said, well, it's a man eating fish. So I asked my father the same question. Is that real? Does it really eat people? And he says, yes. And I didn't see any more piranhas until 1958 when it happened that my brother was stationed at uh, an army post up, up north in Monterey. And we went to the Steinhardt Aquarium and the Monterey uh, Bay Aquarium. And I was able to see my first life piranhas there. From there, I became so interested in them that I started looking up in the library, trying to find whatever I could. And at one time in one of the mobile libraries, I must've been in about maybe third grade, third or fourth grade in the mobile library. I walked in and I found a book on piranhas. Well, it had a, just barely covered it, you know, just a, some photographs and stuff. And I asked, I asked the, the librarian if she had any more books that I could look at that talked about piranhas. And she kind of looked at me and said, no, you don't want to read about those fish. They're horrible. They, they eat people and stuff, you know, forget about it. You know, and I kind of looked at her and I said, okay. And then, uh, first chance I got, I went to the public library, went searching for more books on piranhas. And unfortunately there was not that much material on them. So I kind of had to dig around for what little bit I had and just wrote it all down and kept it as a record. And as I got older, I continued researching the animal and whenever I found some material on it, whether it be a, just a regular aquarium book or a, a book that was specifically about piranhas, like the Schultz book that came out in 1964, I think that book dealt specifically with piranhas. And I learned a lot of that from that little pamphlet. And later when I got into my twenties and thirties, I was already going through uh, the libraries at the, at the universities. And I was beginning to get more into the science part of it more than the actual hobby part of it. Though I was keeping piranhas throughout all that period of time. So it got kind of interesting for me. So what in, in your long history with piranha, what was the first place that you got in touch to keep your own? Cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk through this as you know, you started in the late fifties uh, researching it. Where did you get your toes wet and how in the world it, back in the fifties, when everybody believed that they're these horrible man eaters, where would you get a hold of one? 
Well, see, I was very fortunate that in 1966, I was already trying to get some piranhas at the pet stores. And it was very difficult to find any, if you could find any at all in California, because they were, they were at the beginning stages of being made illegal. And they didn't become illegal until full-fledged illegal until 1972. But anyway, I, I walked into the, one of the pet stores and I talked to the owner there, Woody Trout, and, and I asked, hey, do you got any piranhas for sale? And he says, uh, well, I've got one over here that you can look at it. You know, I got small ones. I said, well, good. I, I went over there to the tank and uh, he picked one out for me and, and I took it home. And I noticed that as it grew, it looked strange. It didn't look like any piranha I'd ever seen before. Well, just to give you an idea, it, it, it wasn't a piranha at all. It was an Oscar, Astronautus Oscillatus. So he got you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you got your dupe, baby. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I went back to the pet store and I said, Hey, wait a minute. You, you sold me an Oscar. And he said, well, you know, hang on. I'll get you some piranhas here in the next month or two. So I went back. It was about a month, month and a half later. And he finally had some small pygocentris natteri, which is the red belly piranha. One of the most commonest you'll ever find. And he had some little ones in there and, and I, and I, I bought a couple and then he gave me a couple of extra ones because he, he really needed to get them out of the store because of the uh, fish and wildlife was going to be investigating the pet, pet stores. So I took those and I experimented with them in, a, in an outdoor pond and uh, try to find out, how, you know, just what temperatures they would survive in and how the water temperature would be before they would die out on me. And, uh, from that I made notes and that was my first attempt to get the California Fish and Wildlife to, to, you know, relook at banning piranhas. And when I got the, the, the message back from them, they said they had no interest in, uh, knowing whether piranhas can live in cold water or not. And, and, and if I had any, I need to destroy them immediately. So I said, I'm not, so I'm not destroying them. So see you later, man. <laughs> Learns generally to never talk to anybody from the state about anything that I do or have. Well, you know, I was trying to do it the right way. You know, that's the whole thing. I was trying to do it the right way. And, and uh, whenever I found any more piranhas, I had to go into Los Angeles and hit a lot of the Asian markets because they had, they had piranhas in their pet stores, but not out in the open. They kept them in the back rooms and stuff. So it was more, more of a matter of talking to other aquarists to find out who had what and where to, where to go to go get them. So that's how I kept myself in supply of piranhas. And, and for me, they weren't so much collecting them as to have them, but so I could study them. I wanted to study them. You know, I wanted, I wanted to learn all that could, what I could about them. So again, you started off with red belly piranha. What's the uh, uh, different varieties of piranha that you've kept personally throughout the years? Uh, okay. Well, we'll start off with Pirea. Natterai, Cariba, which are members of uh, the Pygocentris, and Sarasalmus, I've had Altuvii. Did any of these have uh, common uh, names? <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't common names, Rob. Excellent. <laughs> this is going to be hard. I, Let's see. Do I carry the eye somewhere? Altuvii, Compressus, Elongatus, Cherry Eye, the other ones, uh, Maculatus, Manueli, Rombeus, Sanchezai. And Pygopresis denticulata. Those are the main ones that I've kept. Now I've kept most of the rest of them in, in preserved bottles. So from people that have sent them to me so I could have them for research. Like in formalin or something? Formaldehyde? No, I keep them in ethanol. Per whatever preserves them, right? Yeah, yeah. It keeps them preserved. So there's so many questions that we would get from a beginner aquarist or people that are interested, generally the most extreme. So what's the largest piranha? Because again, we're, we're trying to accommodate experts and beginners uh, alike. So I got to hit all the questions. Okay. The largest wild caught piranha, actually, there are actually two of them. One is Rombeus, which grows on an average, probably about 18 inches and Sarasamus Manueli. Uh, that one gets uh, 
close to that or a little bit bigger around 20, maybe 20 inches if you're lucky to catch one that size. And in captivity, I'm assuming and, there's a particular species that get pretty huge? Well, not really, because for some reason, they don't do well in, in far as growth in, in, the, in the aquarium, primarily because a lot of people can't afford those uh, aquariums that are over, over a thousand gallons. You're actually sure. looking at a swimming pool. I always uh, hear the reference of black piranha that you see on like the uh, river monsters of being the yeah. larger size. Yeah, that's rhombaeus. I, I wouldn't call it the larger size. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty, like I said, they're pretty close with Manueli, which is uh, a species that grows about one to two inches larger than, than rhombaeus. So I, I've had the black piranha and the red-breasted piranha. And to me, the black piranha was so much more aggressive. Do you find the same, same thing? Depends on what you're feeding them. Uh, Rhombaeus is primarily a, a fin eater, so they're, they're they're more interested in attacking fins, except when they're full-grown adults, and then they might take some chunks of flesh. But their diets are totally different than a, than a natteri or common piranha, and it's for that reason where Rhombaeus may be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, because when I, when I used to have it at my facility, the red piranha would always, if you fed them, they always went kind of behind the, the log or whatever and kind of hid, and they didn't want to eat until after dark or else if you stepped away from the aquarium, but the, the black product would come up and, and knock on the glass and say, Hey, feed me, feed me right now. And I'll eat your face off. And yeah, there used to be, yeah, there used to be a popular belief that Budanias didn't feed at nighttime. In fact, I, I held that view for a number of years and until I did delve deeper into the research of them. And I think it was a time when I spoke with, what's his name? Um, Jeremy Wade. And I spoke with his director and he had, he had called me asking me about, about piranhas and whether or not they would be able to catch any at night. I said, well, I don't know. I don't think so because generally it's believed they don't, they don't feed at night. Well, it was at one of the shows that he did where he pretty much disproved that belief, you know, that they do feed at night. Well, most of the questions that uh, people have right off the get go is the aggression. People get this misconception of exactly how they're aggressive. And I generally, when you look in history, you get the, to try to research that where the P, this PR came from, where the, where the boogeyman started, like with sharks, you get jaws, you know, thanks to that cinematic piece, there was bands, shark watches, unnecessary shark hate. When I try to look up and do a bunch of research, the best example that I can see, at least the originating example I can see for bad PR came from our own president, Theodore Roosevelt in 1913. He wrote a through the Brazilian wilderness from one of his exposés saying they are the, this is actually a clip from it. They are the most ferocious fish in the world. Even the most formidable fish, the sharks or barracudas usually attack smaller things than themselves, but piranhas habitually attack things larger than themselves. They'll snap off a finger off a hand and consciously trail through the water. <laughs> they mutilate swimmers in every river down in Paraguay. There are men who have been thus mutilated. They will rend and devour any wounded man or beast for blood in the water excites them to madness. They will tear wounded waterfowl to pieces and bite tails off of big fish. They'll grow exhausted when fighting after being hooked. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Roosevelt. There's, there's, there's a smidgen of truth in all of that. Can you walk Hopefully. us through how their, their behavior can mirror this and where, where we all went wrong? Well, let's see, how should I put this? Piranhas are almost like any other fish. If you condition guppies to eat on one side of the aquarium, they'll go there and they'll attack that food. And that's almost with any fish. You condition them, they will, they will, they will eat whatever's there. Piranhas the same way too. If, if they're conditioned to eat fish parts or pieces of animals that people discarded into the water, 
that's where they're going to be staying at, and that's where they're going to be conditioned to eat, which makes them highly dangerous to humans at that point. So if you're in a shallow piece of water, there's not much danger from them. If, if, if that shallow piece of water is where people are throwing their fish guts or whatever, they're, they're cleaning their fishes, I wouldn't step in it because you're risking to get bit by a pedonia because they, they associate anything entering the water during that conditioning period as food. Ah, so they're pretty darn intelligent. They follow the behaviors of the river and certain areas are going to be more dangerous than the others. Exactly, exactly. In fact, some of the areas that are reported today are areas that were that were man-made, either from closing out dams, causing the fish to reroute, or getting trapped in areas. And people are using these areas for swimming holes, not realizing that some of these areas are where the piranha breeds. And piranhas do guard their eggs, and they're and they're and they're young. Good to know. So, yeah, so you're going to get bit if you disturb their nest. Now we we want to go through each gamut: uh, what to correctly feed them, how to breed them, water parameters. But specifically, before we leave the uh, term of uh, aggression, we also get the preconception like they're they're supposed to be like sharks. When there's blood in the water, they are they're activated. What truth is there to that? Well, it's very true. They do have a high sense of smell. They can smell like like one part, something like one part per million. It's a drop of blood. So yes, they are very much like sharks. They will they will travel to an area where they where they smell it. So I, I would say yeah, they're very shark like in that regard. So is there a way to chum them up in an aquarium by putting a few droplets of blood in there? Well, yeah, they'll, they'll notice. I used to do that. I, I used to prick my finger and, and drop some blood in. Blood Whoa. In that, yeah, that's just, what I call boredom on a Tuesday right there. <laughs> I, used to do, I used to do a lot of crazy things with the piranhas just to test out some things, you know. And the drop of blood was one of them. <laughs> they, they, do, they do notice, believe it or not. <laughs> Man, I'm, I wonder what they do with diabetic blood, Jimmy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like food light. Little food light. Yeah. You know, I think about as I grew up, I, I'm the elder person in the room here, and I watched a lot of Natural Geographic specials, and they always showed the zebras or the wildebeest going across the river and, you know, the piranha eating one of them up. And I always wondered how in the heck do they decide who they're going to eat, or is it something that there's a dead a dead animal in the water or cut animal in the water that starts this and stuff? But you always see that that famous shot that National Geographic will do where they'll, they'll show the carcass there kind of floating next to the river's edge and, and just being tore apart. And, of course, that's great, you know, that's great photography, great cinematic stuff for people to watch, and uh, it's exciting. Well, you know, when, when you're watching those kind of scenes on, on TV where they're dropping an animal in, into the water for the piranhas to eat, Look beyond the piranhas and look at all the other fishes that are also attacking the food. You'll you'll see cichlids. You'll see a variety of tetras in there. It's not just piranhas. Yeah, but a neon's never nipped my noodle. That's see, that's the whole problem, Jimmy. <laughs> right there, you hit the nail on the head. We all, as men, feel like we're gonna swim in the water and get our d bit off. That's the whole fear, I right there, Jimmy. I don't want that. <laughs> I think you should be more worried about the kendiru than a piranha, to be quite honest. Candido and Stingray are two that you don't want to mess around with. And there's a third one that most people don't know or don't recognize, and that's the carnero. Wait, is that? Is that that tiniest penis swimming fish? When you watch that River Monsters, which we talk about with Jeremy Wade, right? They talked about this one episode where there's a tiny fish that swims up your urethra. That's why you can't get in the water. That's a Candido, yeah. Oh, okay. Just want to be clear on that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a little catfish. The Cardinetto is also a catfish. They, they call it a blue whale in the aquarium trade. That one there can drill holes in you, and they eat you from the inside out. Sounds like what? My, sounds like yeah, my ex-wife. Yeah. My God. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the holes the holes they make can also be confused for gunshot wounds. So that's why whenever they find a, a body in, in, in the river and take it to the examiner, they, they, the first as, assumption is that the person has been shot, but actually there's tetopsis inside of them, the carnetto fish inside of them. Man, I, I have how many more of those things I could have sold in my pet store if I had just said gunshot wound fish? <laughs> <laughs> Ta-da. <Yeah>, probably. <laughs> See, Frank used to be a marketing guru in another life. Well, yeah, I could tell you a lot of a lot of weird fish for the market. <laughs> well, well, Frank, I, I think that there's no better person to start uh, talking about care and parameters. What's the best thing that you should feed piranha? Because you know, in the wild, they're opportunistic. In your aquarium, you're the person providing the food and have a lot better access to. Uh, to ingredients. Well, what, what's the, what's the good diet for a, for a piranha? Okay. First of all, I never recommend live foods for one or at one or two specific reasons, disease and parasites. So you never really want, you should never think about giving them live foods, give them frozen foods. You can use chopped fish. You can use shrimp. You can use things like squid, clams, things like all like things like that, that approach the natural food that they normally find is, is the perfect food. I would not give them chicken. That's one of the things that I constantly hear that people are feeding their piranhas chicken because they see it on TV. And, and even though they do eat chicken, it's not what I would call a natural diet for them. Now, there's predators that you, because we, we got all kinds of friends in this uh, this fishy world, and people that have certain predator fish, you hear that don't feed them live. But then you also have, on the other hand, when you have predators, you want that instinctual hunt happen, you know, for enrichment and something in the tank. So people will still find a way of, you know, adding crickets or something else to the tank to add some sort of movement without just being uh, abusive or putting in, you know, goldfish with parasites. Piranha really don't have to have that, or is there something that you recommend for that enrichment? I'll tell you honestly, I don't think the fish cares. I don't think it even notices. The only thing that it knows is that it's in a captive environment and you're the person that feeds them. That's the two things that they, they, they do know. So once you take them out of their natural homes, they're just going to eat whatever you give them, you know? So there's no reason to think that this is going to help their hunting skills or, or whatever. It's just, that's all, it's all in your mind, not theirs. So with most fish, you try to size the, the food, whether it's a flake or a micro pellet or a sizable pellet, something that would accommodate the fish's mouth. Again, when you're chopping pieces up, the squid, anything that you recommended, do you re recommend doing small pieces or do you want to every now and again put uh, bigger hunks because this guy can slice a bite off? Well, if you have a group of them, let's say you say you have about four or five natteri, yeah, you can put a chunk in there. It's not going to hurt them. You put a chunk of them, let them tear it apart. You know, it's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But generally, I, when, when I feed mine, I, I feed mine about the size of a, of a dime, the, the, the food that I give them. So you, they, they have something they can swallow. Now, do you have to be concerned, like, for instance, if someone has, you know, like three dogs in the house, I'm just trying to you know, paint a picture for our, our listeners. If somebody has three dogs in the house and you put one bowl out, sometimes they'll nip at each other for that, for space and accommodation. Piranhas don't do that, do they? Yeah, they do. They do. So Yeah. <laughs> so you can put a larger piece in there, but you still have to be concerned of them nipping each other. Exactly. Exactly. So even if you're putting a larger piece, you probably have to put a couple in just for the sake of you don't want them to nip each other during feedings. So it's still yeah, better to do the dime-sized pieces. Yeah, because they're they're going to, you know, they're, they're, they get into a feeding frenzy. Depends on, again, depends on the species that you have. But they get into a feeding frenzy, and that's where most of the accidents happen, where they get a bit thin or, or they get the part of their pieces bit off. 
But the good news, the fins regenerate and depends on where they're, depending on where they're bit on the body, that will regenerate also. You know, I used to bring in uh, piranhas, bring in 250, 300 at a time, and they would always go after each other's eyeballs. And I had, yeah. I had a terrible, terrible time trying to keep them off of each other. I tried taking and putting them in a huge tank, like a horse trough that was dark, shredded up all kinds of uh, plastic to put in there so they had places to hide and stuff. And I'd buy 250, 300 piranha, and I'd sell 80 of them with two eyes. All the rest of them had one eye. Is there anything you can do to, about that? Not really, because the nature of the beast. Because eyes are delicious, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, you know. And uh, just so you know, the ones that feed the most and eat the most are the females. Oh, I believe that entirely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they... uh they tend to, to, to grow faster off the males, you know, they can eat enough of them. But yeah, the eyeballs are, are, are a delicacy for them. So how do you ship these things? I'm assuming that there's going to be uh, a ton of aggression. And I know that Jimmy's ordered uh, from, uh, I think there's only like three actual big wholesale breeders in the United States right now. And we've always seen them like rip up newspaper or anything they can get in the bags. Is there is there a trick or a secret to get these things shipped? Well, it depends on the size. If you're, if you're talking about, juveniles under let's say about an inch inch and a half you don't have to worry about them but, you know triple bag them should be enough to take care of it maybe with a little bit of newspaper on around the second or third bag but uh, if you're talking to larger adults three four five six inches then you're talking about putting them into a, a tupperware container with holes in it and seal them and put the fish inside the tupperware put the top on it put them into a one or two bags and then you can ship them that way Interesting. So what are the perfect raw, now when you say perfect, it's got to be species specific, but general water parameters that you want, what temperatures, pH? Well, piranhas can tell, can tolerate almost any kind of pH, but I generally tell people keep it around neutral seven, six, eight, maybe six, seven at the lowest, the highest, maybe eight, 8.2. I think if I remember correctly for pH for water temperature, Depending on the species, if you're going to have a species like Pygocentris cariba, which is from Venezuela, then you want to keep that one in cooler temperatures because higher temperatures above 76, 77 brings out the aggression in the fish and they will, they will devour each other. In fact, I hear a lot of people that, that have lost cariba has been because of the temperature in the aquarium was too high. Other ones like Pygocentris, that one, uh, it, it's runs about the same like cariba. You have to keep it a little bit cooler temperatures. Natterai, not so much. Why does the temperature bring out aggression in them? It actually, it comes down to, it, it triggers the, the breeding behavior. And when, oh. they're in, and when they're in breeding behavior, they become very aggressive. It's like spring break in Florida, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adam's always angry. <laughs> so talk about this, this breeding pattern in nature and then how you can try to replicate it or your successes replicating it in, indoors. Well... My success was based in, in, in around the 1970s and I wasn't even trying to breed them. I had some ones that were about, about six inches, which is the normal breeding size. And the water temperature, if I remember correctly, I had them at about 82 or 83 degrees. And I wasn't paying that much attention to the pH and the fishes were, were basically grown in the aquarium from, from juveniles. And it just, for me, it was just pure luck that they actually started spawning. The best I can tell you, there's no way to tell which is the male or the female when they're, when they're at breeding age and the eggs used, I think they hatch in about three or four days, something like that. I'm trying to dig back into my memory and other people that have written about them, but three, four days where the eggs would hatch and you have anywhere from a hundred to several thousand eggs. 
I just, on mine, they just laid out about a couple hundred and that was it. And I had no intentions of, of, you know, separating the juveniles once they hatched, you know, they, they eventually got eaten by the parents. Well, most of them did anyway. Now, are they just full scatterers or they, you said they protect their eggs. So they do nesting? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They protect their eggs. They, they build a nest. What they, what they do, if you have aquarium gravel, you'll notice that they'll actually the male will actually dig a hole in the gravel to prepare it for the, for the breeding. And, uh, the female, if she's interested, eventually they'll, they'll get into some really aggressive dancing mating behavior. They're like birds. I mean, they really, they really get down to it. And if the female is not uh, ready to lay eggs, oftentimes she can actually be killed by the male. So it's this, it's this, uh, very risky dance of how your females yeah. are going to give in or die. Yeah. Yeah. It's very risky behavior. That's why, you know, you gotta have to watch them carefully because, uh, if it gets too aggressive, then you might want to separate them. But generally, that's what they do. They 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 beat on they beat each other up and bite each other's tails. And and when they luck, they'll lay out some eggs. It sounds and once awesome. they do that. Yeah, once they do that, then both parents are very very extremely protective of those eggs. I had a lot of uh, experience breeding bettas, and bettas are the same way. If you're not there, paying attention and stuff, you could easily lose a female. And I've had females that have ripped into males and and killed males too. Yeah, that's, that's what I've heard about them. I, I, I read about betas back, back in the early days. And I remember they were saying something about that. So do you keep the fry with the parents? And if so, for how long? The best advice is to separate them. If you can, if you have an addition, if you have another 125 gallon aquarium, or <laughs> that would be the size you would need once they start growing out. But if you have a 10 gallon or, or 20 gallon aquarium, you know, put the, put the fry into it and then just feed them euphoria, or you could feed them some baby brine shrimp to get them started, you know, once, once their egg sacs are absorbed. Well, they, you said that a lot of the piranhas are fin nippers, especially as babies. Yeah. It work to put bigger fish in there so they can just nip the fins or would they be more likely to not do that? I wouldn't recommend that because other bigger fishes would see them as a snack. Okay. So you, you want to keep, you want to not put anything in there that's going to cause the, the little, the fright of the be eaten. So. You just kind of stick with keeping them separated for a while. And then as they get larger, then you can call them and, and put, you know, separate them by size into whatever aquariums that you have containers. So let's talk tank mates. If you're going to have these, are there any tank mates? And we, we do have some extremist hobbyists on there that do have these thousand gallon tanks. Uh, if you're to do a larger one, would you just keep it piranhas or stingrays capable, capable of having with them safely? What would you recommend for tank tank mates? Okay. If you're, if you're talking about the, the extreme aquarium, people that have those, those gigantic 600 plus aquariums, generally there's nothing wrong with mixing other species in there because there's plenty of room for the, for the fishes to escape. If, if they're, if the piranha sees them as a potential lunch, generally when I, I tell people that, that keep them in smaller aquariums. You know, don't do that because those, those fishes that you put in with piranhas are to the piranhas, nothing more than a snack, but for the guys with the, with the monster aquariums, uh, the, you know, I've seen something like 10 or 20 red belly piranhas mixed in with African tiger fish. And I've seen them with uh, knife fishes and stingrays and everything mixed into that aquarium, you know, which is kind of impressive, but again, it's a matter of question of space, whether the prey can escape or not. Or have the place to hide. But in those smaller, you know, uh, minimum of 125 gallon areas, no tank mates. No, I wouldn't do it. I would not recommend it. You could keep a coolie loach that lives in the sand, you know, rops. Put some, uh, <laughs> put some horse faces in there. Yeah. Put, put a, see if they can hide away. See if they can put some loaches in the sand. What about that? You know, 
one Florida well, Playco, you know, that everybody just gives you because they bought it at Walmart. <laughs> well, you guys were talking, I got, I was, I was remembering Costumus that I used to have in a, in a piranha tank. Cause I, I had heard that you could keep Placostomus with Bionis without any problems, according to the person that was writing about it. So I did that experiment and, and I put a Placostomus in there and I noticed after a few days, the Placostomus was not moving from where it was. So I thought, well, that's weird. Maybe, maybe it's dead. So I went over there and I got it with a net, took it out. And it turned out that its entire belly had been drilled out and eaten by the Bionis. Ooh, <laughs> they found oh, a way. Yeah, so so much for that idea, you know. <laughs> now, is there any safety precautions that a uh, normal Aquarius would need? Don't put your hand in there ever. Don't put your hand in there during certain times. What's the real risk of losing a finger? Okay, first of all, I have never suffered any injuries my, with my hand in the aquarium, cleaning it. Wait, wait, was this before or after you added your own blood? Nope. No, <laughs> no never, never had that problem. The only time I was ever bitten by one was when I took it out of the aquarium with a net. Me and my mother at that time was talking to me, distracted me, and the fish bit through, bit through the net and I caught it with my hand and it bit me. But I didn't feel it at that moment until my mother screamed and said, you're bleeding. And then I looked down and I realized the fish had, had uh, bit into my finger and blood was pouring out of it. And then I felt it. And it was one of the most horrible feelings, pain I ever felt in my life. So sharp, you didn't even feel it. I did, it's like a paper cut. You don't feel it. And when you do feel it, you know you've been cut. So how deep, yeah, deep uh, was that bite? Well, it took three stitches to put it back, my skin back together again. Whew. But, and the specimen was only two and a half inches in size. So be careful Dang. when you're netting. Is there a special like net material? Like, Do you uh, recommend like metal mesh? Or they kind of bite through anything you try to use? Well, normally I recommend people use a, a bucket or a container sometime if you, if you need to fish them out. There are some nets today that I understand are, are strong enough to, to, to hold the piranha without, without it biting through it. I don't remember the name of it, but it, it's, it's a net that you can get, probably get on Amazon. Man, I would love but, to be sponsored by that, that company. Jimmy's been trying to bite through this thing for years. Here. Use promo code aquarium guys for 15% <laughs> off the piranha proof net. You know, that would be the funnest ad of yeah. all time. I, I was bit one time too, doing the same exact thing. I got bit on, on my one finger. It was a nice half moon and the same thing. I was, I was handling a, a piranha in a net and it went through the net pretty quick and I'd reached down to grab it and it bit me <laughs> and, um, it got me on a vein. So every time my heart pumped, which was pumping pretty quick, by the way, it was like a little lawn sprinkler. <laughs> and, uh, from then on, we went to using a metal seine, you know, like you strain your spaghetti in. Oh, we went out and bought a long handled strain which you can get at a commercial restaurant type place and that's how we catch piranhas because we got tired of throwing nets away we had two three hundred piranhas and and you grab 12 15 piranha for one customer and then you throw the net away so what profit you were making in the few piranhas you had left we had two eyes uh you're losing it just in in nets and so the metal saying worked for us very well because we were selling we were getting them in about the size of a dime and by the time the last ones were out they were the size of a quarter and uh we too found that, that using that little plastic cool whip bowl or something and putting them in when they got to a certain size, so they wouldn't go through the net worked exactly. very well for us. Ooh, we did get a message exactly. from a fan saying, I thought that's how aquarium guys got circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't very nice, but it's true. Shabbat Shalom. It's true. <laughs> no, actually that's, that, that's how I, I, uh, had my, uh, what's that other surgery I had? 
Oh yeah, the vasectomy. The vasectomy. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> they brought a, they brought a couple of small piranha in. Not big. You paid them extra for the service. Yes, oh, God. They use they use colanders. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about small piranha, then you're probably talking about Sanchez I. <laughs> yep. How uh, how how big do these grow? Well, Sanchez I get about six inches. There's one that's a little bit smaller, which is well, it used to be under the genus Pristobrichen, and that's Calmanai, and that's that's about a four or five inch piranha. Now, which piranha species do you recommend that uh, people after the podcast that are so enthused that they really want to get into the piranha species and try it for themselves? Number one, how would they get started? And two, what species would you recommend they beg their pet store for? Well, you know, that's a tough question to to answer because they're, to me, they're, all the piranhas are, are amazing. Each one, each species has its own individual trait personality. If you like the aggressive ones, then, you know, you might want to stick with uh, Maculatus, Rhombaeus, Elongatus, maybe Sanchezi as well. If you, if you like ones that are, that are kind of not so piranha-like as far as the aggression goes, again, aggression is, is, is a word that could apply to almost any, any one of those species. But if you want one that's not so aggressive, then you probably stick with the ones that were in, in genus Pristobrichen, which is like uh, Macula pinus, Striolatus. Maybe Altuvii, Medinai. If you like ones that, that, that like to eat a lot of fins, you know, then you probably want to go with the Irritans from Venezuela. Uh, again, Sanchez is a real big fin eater. I, I, I don't know what uh, would, you know, inspire someone. You're like, man, I'm really looking for one that would just rip apart some fins. Uh, is that out of each other or is that of, you know, just because you want to be that person to put a, say, a tail or something well, in your tank to feed them with? Well, if you, if you want to aggress, if you want a fish that will just attack anything pretty much, then you want to stay within Picocentris because that's, that's what I call the true piranha, Cariba, Natarai, and Birea. Then you can keep those in, in pretty much in groups. You know, again, the cautionary tale being don't keep them in too high water temperature. Now, uh, Frank, in, in my past, I've had the red belly piranha and I had a, the black piranha. That's all I ever had for those two different species. But one of my customers had the most beautiful piranha and they had this gold flake to it. It was absolutely gorgeous. He had two of them and I know he searched high and low to get them. You know what those would have might have been? Yeah, gold, gold flakes. Gold flakes. The, the only gold ones that I know of besides the uh, Natarai from uh, Argentina would be uh, Maculatus. That, was, that's, that one's been sold as a gold piranha. And uh, Pygo Priestess Denticulata is also another one that's got a lot of gold color to it. And one other one that's not seen very often in the trade is Arius. And that's a really, really beautiful golden color in, in the fins and in the body. Yeah, the gentleman that had them was a piranha enthusiast. And he told me at the time what they were, and I'm sure it just went one ear and out the other. But I just remember looking at them going, you, you never see anything this gorgeous. And then it would turn or, or spin and it would just glisten. And it was absolutely beautiful. And I, you, I, do you remember if it had any body markings on it? Like, you know, yes, stripes or spots? It had some stripes. It had some stripes? Yep. Okay. Then it, it's probably Pago Priestess Denticulata. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous, I thought. And and yeah. his his were adults and, and big, and his babies is very beautiful. Yeah. Now, how large was it? Do you remember? I want to say about six, seven. Okay. Okay. It's almost full-grown adult. They they get about they get about nine or 10 inches in the wild. Okay. Yeah, I, I know he spent a lot of money, a lot of time uh, dealing with different brokers and stuff, trying to get stuff in. And he was trying to collect as many species as he possibly could. But for some reason, that was the one that just caught my eye when I was over at his home. Yeah, they're really beautiful fish. In fact, people, you know, when they when they look at the natari that I have, you know, put it up on on Facebook, they always comment about how beautiful they look. I said, well, this is just one of of many that 
that are even more beautiful than this one. So now what's some do's and don'ts of decor? For instance, we, we talk with some Bashir experts and they say that you shouldn't ever have pea gravel in your tank, that you should stick with sand because that particular species might feed and then actually swallow pieces and it happens all the time. Do piranhas need specific gravel, hiding places? Do they need a high water flow? Well, we'll talk about gravel first. It doesn't really matter on, on the gravel because I've never encountered any problem. And I've used pea gravel. I've used just regular aquarium style gravel. I've used sand. The only one that I ever had any problems with was silica sand because it would just tear up the filters. But people would use silica sand in there. But generally, any kind of aquarium gravel is fine. The only thing you got to watch out for is if the gravel is too big and it traps the, the food in it. As far as, uh, what was the other question you had to that? I'm sorry. Like decor, for instance, do they need extra hiding places? Should you have a cave system? Oh, oh. when they're juveniles, they'll tend to hide a lot. So it doesn't hurt to have aquarium plants in there or even ceramic tree trunks. The only thing you got to be careful is if they don't get trapped in it when they freak out. And they get easily freaked out by any kind of noise or vibration, even from the footsteps and the water. They'll sense it through the water. But as far as plants are concerned, you can have plants with them, but with the understanding that they will chop up some of the plants that you have in there or try to eat it or will eat it. Do, do they use any of their plants for making the nest? Like when they're breeding, do they actually shred up any of the leaves for part of the nest? Yeah, 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 they do. They do it for to kind of kind of watch for any other predator that might be in the, in the water with them. So it's just, a, that's just something they do instinctively. They just chop up the plants around them. You ever have to worry about, because again, these guys have super razor really teeth. Ever have to worry about them nipping up fake plants or any other other decor? Yeah, they will. They will tear up plastic plants. That's one of the things that I don't recommend you have in the aquarium is plastic plants for that reason, because they, they will tend to chop it up and sometimes they'll even swallow it. So it's not a, not a very good thing to have in their gut. All right. Well, the next question is a uh, water flow. Again, these come from, you know, South America water systems, high flow, low flow, no flow. Depends on the species. If you're looking at something like rhombaeus, elongatus, I think gibbous, those species, they require a strong water flow, especially rhombaeus because it's found in rapids and areas where there's the waterfalls are at. And, and so the water, it's extremely powerful there. And you'll find the full grown adults in there. In the aquarium, I always tell people, put a power head. Let it run for a couple hours to give them a rest period. And you'll find out that, that the fish will actually exercise more and, and it'll lose a lot of the fat that you don't want the fish to build up in the dorsum area. You, you said specifically uh, in the dorsal, uh, do, when these fish get chunky, do they get fat anywhere else? Or is that just the, the main, well, uh, main place? Okay. Yeah. A lot of it comes from people feeding it the wrong foods and not giving the fish exercise and the fat, the dorsum area on the fish, which is the, which is the. The part of the body behind the eyes, the upper part, if, if it builds up too much, it'll kind of look like a deformed uh, appendage on, on the fish. And that's because it has too much fat in there. And during the dry season, the fish uses that fat storage in order to survive when there's a lack of food anywhere else. So if you let it build up, eventually it's going to impact the rest of the fish's organs from the liver to the heart to other, other parts of it. And so you're going to, you're going to cause its demise where the average life for some of these fishes around 10 years, where in reality they can live up to 20 or 30 years. So you want to be very, very careful with that and make sure they get enough exercise in the aquarium. Now, some people that I've talked to for different fish species believe that you should be recreating some of these cycles. Is this one of the fish species that you want to, you know, maybe in the winter feed them a bit and then for a time in the early spring, starve them out for a couple of weeks and then go back to a, a normal feeding schedule? 
to try to recreate I that? I don't see any reason why not. Yeah, I don't see any reason why not. I mean, that's, that's actually a very good formula for them because they do go through periods of fasting on their own, even without you doing all that. But as a general rule, I would say, yeah, go ahead if you can. If you, if you, have, if you have the time and you have the, the ability to do it, by all means, duplicate it if you can. So what would be, in your opinion, a good fasting period for your, for a fish that has a nice puffy frontal lobe? Well, I usually let mine go anywhere from, from a couple of weeks to, to a month before feeding them again. Now you got to be careful with that because you have to, you have to monitor them because otherwise they'll start nipping at each other. Once they start nipping at each other, then I would say, yeah, toss some food in there. But generally I, I let them go. I go to let them go for that period of time without, without eating just so they would get the exercise from the power head and. And also to make sure they don't overdevelop in the dorsum area. So not on a fast, how often do you feed your Perona? I feed them about every other day. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm so accustomed to the, to the routine now. I just go in or toss the food in there, watch them while they feed, go upstairs and forget about them for a day or two, and then go back down again, repeat the cycle. So going down more list of questions, we started out talking about how you are able to change the laws for your local uh, government. A lot of people have different issues having piranhas in different, even cities. Florida is a very unique case. Florida is kind of the uh, the melding pot of fish where people have uh, exactly. fish farms and whatnot. But even in Florida, certain city municipals versus county and state all have different laws of how, who can have what, who needs to have licenses to hold what. What would you recommend for people listening that are having issues in their area on how to represent and get laws changed? Well, first of all, I, I, I have to go by the science on this. All right. And to be honest with you, there's no way in hell anyone's going to be able to keep piranhas in Florida because it is one of the areas where, where, uh, piranhas can thrive. So, you know, uh, so do your homework and petition in somewhere like Minnesota where uh, they're, they're going to freeze out. Well, okay. In those states like Minnesota, the only, the only argument fish and wildlife would have and it's a good argument. Unfortunately, they don't use it very often. If they did, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Oregon would have had piranhas legalized, but there are areas where piranhas can thrive in the cold water states. And usually those areas are where the water is kept warm, either by nuclear power plants or our hydrology plants, where I forget the name of the term, what it's called, but, but where the water is, is kept warmer than, than the regular river sections. Now those areas are hot springs. They might thrive in there. So anywhere that there's like a hot water discharge from any of these types. Exactly. Of exactly. They exactly. Can, where the water can, can average about, you know, anywhere above 74 degrees that then, then you run the risk that the fish could survive during the winter. Or if the water temperature gets higher by say 82, then they, they, in theory, they, they would spawn. Makes sense. And if so, if they're spawning somewhere, there's a nuclear power plant. Yeah. Could be trouble. Yeah. In fact, I think there's one, I think it was, in, uh, I think it's Missouri somewhere, Missouri or Mississippi. There's an area where, where they were concerned that piranhas were populating. And I think Jeremy Wade did a, a whole thing on that, but they, they, they never found any, they caught one, but they never found any other ones. That's because Jeremy brought it with him when he got there. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah. In California now, uh, I investigated a lot of the, the so-called piranha captures there and, and actually went to the localities where there's one in Santa Barbara that really that stuck to me that I went to it and I spoke with the caretaker and he told me that originally there were two pakus that were put into the pond there by somebody and that he knew about them, but didn't think anything, you know, didn't think they were going to do anything because he was familiar with the fish. Well, anyway, some lady, I guess, was there and, and, and caught one on a, on a hook and line and, and of course she 
panicked because she thought she caught a piranha. And the newspapers got a hold of it. And there was some kind of a tropical fish guy. That I'm not sure whether a hobbyist or what he was, but he was telling the newspaper that these fish probably spawned in there. There's going to be a lot of piranhas in there uh, <laughs> in the spring or something. And so I went down there myself, took a look at it. And, and, and the guy described the fishes to me. And I, I saw the photographs and realized they were all, they were Paku. And he told me this, this aquarist guy was a, was a real idiot. He had dealt with them before. And the way the newspapers carried it, they said that the, the fish had been eating uh, duck's feet off and our foots off and uh, that some per- turtles had disappeared. And you know, the whole, the whole piranha lore myth. <laughs> And it was all Paku in there. That's all it was. Yeah. All the, all the turtles that disappear here in Minnesota are because they're crossing the highway and they get ran over. <laughs> I'm sure those turtles that were there did that just, just, just walked out on their own, you know, probably did. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this is the way the newspapers carry, they carry it with a lot of panic and a lot of lore from the, from the Roosevelt theory, you know, back in the day of Roosevelt. Well, we've talked about a lot of the podcasts, but I wouldn't be doing justice if I didn't repeat some of the Paku warnings. People that get these Paku, Paku are generally very cheap when they're purchased. They're safer. People that have a local fish store that want to sell someone an Oscar when they're asking for a piranha because they can't get access, they're cheaper, or they're just trying to trying to make a quick buck is unfortunate. These particular Paku become very massive very quickly. Trust me yeah. when I say this, you do not want to purchase a Paku unless you have a massive aquarium. We're talking like a 300-gallon aquarium if you want to keep the entire life cycle well, of a Paku. Actually, a 300-gallon aquarium is too small. You're, you're looking at a pool-sized aquarium of between 800, which is really, really getting close to the to the minimum size. The, the Pakus in, in nature, they get at least three feet long. Yeah, take yourself the largest garbage can uh, that you can find, and it's it's bigger than the lid. If you want to see some of these, you can go over to the Ohio Fish Rescue, and they have one of the uh, biggest ones on record. I don't think it's the biggest, but I think it's it's pretty darn close of Betty the Paku, and that Paku lived for uh, in captivity before Rich got it for 18 and a half, 19 years, and Uh it had to be essentially recouped to build muscles because it never swam. Well, you know, it's aggressive. Yeah, I I talk with well. Back in the day when I, when Frank and Glenn and I used to talk to each other and, and before we retired, uh, I reminisced with him about some of the pakus they had there at the Steinhardt. And he and I both agree they had some in there that were at least five feet long. I mean, that was, they were humongous. And I remember seeing them, I, you know, you could practically climb on top of them and ride them like a horse. You know, they were so huge. But yeah, but these were close to five feet. I didn't believe they grew that big, but they do, or they did. And in the Amazon, don't they eat them quite often? Oh yeah, they're they're a delicacy. They try to fish more for those than they fish for piranha. You know, so yeah, they're they're pretty good eating. So Adam, you have more questions. You you have to hit this gentleman up while we have him on the podcast. I was really intrigued about the breeding thing, about the temperature thing. So the gold piranhas, the maculatus. Yeah, where are they from? Because I got one in for a customer. I special ordered one, but it got shipped from Peru, but I yeah. didn't think they were, are they from Peru? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's about five, what we call a uh, polymorphic species. They're a body shape and, uh, they come in a variety of colors, but yeah, they're, they're in Peru. They're in Brazil. They're in Argentina. I forget where else. There's a couple other places they're from, but yeah, they, they, they get them in Peru. Okay. Cause when I got it, I got it in a box. It was like a maybe four inch one. And uh-huh. it destroyed the, they put it in a bucket <laughs> and it destroyed the bucket. And then it took chunks out of the box. Like the box was leaking. And I was like, oh, that's not good. And yeah, he, sh- he destroyed a net from the, from the time that I got him 
to the, from the box to the tank and just would, would strike the glass. He was not a happy fish. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a wild one. <laughs> yeah. That one was wild. So have, have you bred those ones before or has any? Yeah, I did. Ones? Yeah. I, I bred those mid, uh, mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. Yeah. I bred them. Okay. The Natterai and the Maculatus are the two of uh, the two of the species that are, that are predisposed to the spawning captivity. Now, fortunately for, for piranha collectors, some, some of the people are starting to breed Eigenmanni, which is sometimes misclassified as Humoralis. But Eigenmanni is being bred in captivity. So is uh, Surasalmus jerii, which is the violet, uh, violet striped piranha. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I think there's a per person in oh. Germany that's actually breeding them. Yeah. They like to breed their rare stuff over there, don't they? <laughs> no, for but yeah, Maculatus, Maculatus are about one of the, but it's easy to breed as, as Natterai. Okay. So the common red-breasted ones aren't really that easy to breed? No, they are. The red-breasted ones are, are the Natterite. Oh, they're the, okay. You're using common names. A lot of common names are attached to a lot of these piranhas, but uh, hey. red-breasted or, or red-belly, those are, those are Natterai. Okay. I should have looked up scientific ones first. So I should get a tub for Maculatus. Cause I want to breed piranha. That's one of my goals now is to breed piranha when I get space. So for breeding them, do you need to put a, have like a group of them and then they, then they pick a mate out since they do a dance like birds or. Yeah, because you can, if you can raise them from fry, then you can closely monitor them and find out which one eats the most and which one grows the fastest. Cause then you can usually pick out the female within a couple of years of watching them grow. So the female will always be larger and then, then the male will eventually catch up. Okay. And they're ready. They're ready to breed at about six inches. Oh, really? Yeah. They'll be ready to breed by that side. That's the same with Maculatus. Maculatus, same deal. You know, they, they, okay. about six inches, they'll, they'll start breeding. Now there's a, there's a couple of them that I would like to try to breed myself. In fact, I was going to get a shipment in uh, and unfortunately, you know, I had some personal issue here at home that I couldn't order them this time around, but the guy that's selling them to me is going to try to get them to me next year. And that's Pygo Priestess Denticulata. That's one of the few that, that can be identified as male or female. With uh, Denticulata, it has, the male has a bilobed anal fin and I'm hoping to try to breed those. Now there's another one that hasn't been tried. But I'm hoping that I can do it here, and that's Sanchezai. That's that's a fish that's from Peru, and I've got two here right now, which I think I've identified which is the female and which is the male on there. So I'm hoping that eventually I'm going to take the tank divider away from them and see what happens. If they don't kill each other and they lay some eggs, I'll be happy. But if they start to kill each other, I need to put the divider back in. So how many how many of the species have you managed to cross off your bucket list then? Let's see. Well, like I said, I, I've had to say one. I mean, let me go down my list here. I got the list in front of me, so I, I don't forget them all. <laughs> he actually <laughs> has a legit my, bucket list. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you my, have to. Yeah, my, my cheat sheet, as I call it. <laughs> Let's see. I've had the 12 species out of the 28 that are recognized right now. So have you had better luck breeding in glass tanks or in vats? I, the guy I used to buy from used to breed all his stuff in cement vats. The, 125, 125 gallons is the minimum tank that you need for breeding in Natterai. I've never tried it in a tub. I mean, I did try it in a tub before with Sanchez. but out of 10 Sanchez that I had in there, I only had two survivors. So that's the two that I have right now. Yeah, that was his complaint was that when he tried to breed them in cement vats, it's too hard to keep an eye on, on everybody because you can't see them except from the top. Yeah. But that's where, that's where he had success was breeding them in cement vats and he would put in plastic tubs of gravel for them uh -huh. to, to dig in and stuff. But he, he thought that they bred better because they didn't see people walking around so often. That's possible. I mean, I don't, I don't disturb my fish very often. I mean, even, even when they bred in the aquarium, when I, 
when I walked into the aquarium, was I had seen them in about a couple of days. And when I noticed that they had built a nest, you know, I said, oh, what's this all about? And then, then I peeked in and I thought they were dropping eggs in there. So I left them alone. I didn't want to disturb them. So I was afraid they'd either eat the eggs or start eating each other if I, you know, if I bothered them. Yeah. yeah it's a good idea. You don't bother them at all if, they're, if you're going to breed them. Yeah, with Robbie, he loves to put cameras on tanks and stuff. Yeah, that's what I would do today. If I, you know, if I was going to do that, I would definitely set up a spy camera and see what they're up to. I mean, how else are you going to put random fish on OnlyFans? That's right, OnlyFans. Got to make money in this podcast somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do have a question from one of the uh, listeners. What on earth do you use for a divider material? Because if they're pissed off at each other before the divider... You put in a divider, you figure they're going to take a couple whaps at the divider before figuring out they can't, you know, get to the other side. Chain link fence. Chain link fence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just use a plastic uh, uh, piece of uh, sheeting in there with holes in it to let the water flow through. You could probably buy something like that, similar to that at at mail order places for a tank divider. Could you use like a piece of acrylic? Uh, yeah, you can use acrylic. You can use acrylic or you can use, what's that stuff, egg crating that you get for the for the lights? Yeah, you can use egg crating. You know, don't, the only reason why I don't like egg crating is because sometimes they have little sharp edges in there and the fish, if they see each other, they'll tend to rub each other's jaws on it and, and it can cause a little bit of damage. So you want to use something that's a little bit smoother. Listener question number two, what toothbrush do you use to brush their teeth with? ha. <laughs> Just, just whatever, whatever, uh, uh, shrimp has bones in it and <laughs> toss it in there. They could get their teeth, you know, taken care of just like a dog. <laughs> now this isn't an actual listener question for this next one, but I have had someone ask me it legitimately. Do piranhas need to continually sharpen or grind down their teeth like beaver? No, the, the teeth are replaced. If they get damaged, they get replaced. There's underneath the, inside the jaw. Uh, if you were to cut it away, you would see some uh, a row of extra teeth below there. And if a piranha damages its tooth, that tooth is pushed out by the newer ones, and the whole set is replaced at the same time. Now, is it only when it's damaged, or they just like shed these things on the regular? Well, they're damaged. They, they will. I'm not exactly sure on the on when they actually just replace it on a regular basis. I just know that when the fish has a tooth that's damaged, the entire set is replaced. So in the aquarium, you don't see like a bunch of extra teeth in the sand or bottom when you're gravel vacuuming or something like you would like say a stingray, uh, tail. Well, yeah, you, you would. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of times, and I've talked to people that have vacuumed the aquarium and actually seen the teeth as it's being bubbled up, you know, by the, by the pressure while they're doing it. And if you had a bare tank, you would definitely see teeth all over the place on the bottom of the tank. So do you have like one of those cool Caribbean necklaces, but just with micro teeth? <laughs> actually I do. I have, sir, I got a couple. Hey, but, uh, hey, I called I, it, Jimmy. Oh, man. <laughs> like, I, I have, I have another question about beating. You know how you said that you'd give them like smaller pieces of food? Do you have to put any special vitamins or anything on that food? You can. You can use a B1 vitamins. Okay. Yeah, you can use a B1 vitamin. It doesn't hurt to use vitamins. You know, you can saturate it or if you can put it inside of the, the, the food, you can do it that way. Hey, okay. hey, Adam, what was that thing you talked about that one day we were talking on the phone about silver dollars and piranha? What was that about? Oh, oh yeah. So I watched, my kids have a thing for from Animal Planet and they were, they were showing about piranha breeding. And they said that the piranha were breeding with silver dollars, I guess, in the river. Because me and Jim were trying to figure out a way to keep piranhas from eat, ripping out each other's eyes. And I thought that if you put a crap ton of current on them, and bloom around that they'd be less likely to eat each other's eyes. But then I remembered that if on the show, they said that they would fin nip the 
baby silver dollars and that they would all school together and that the piranhas would just nip off the silver dollars or the Paku fins and that they would grow back within a day or two and that and everything was fine. Could you do that in the aquarium too or no? You could try it. I mean, there's no reason why not to try it. I mean, I don't know if it would work or not, but you can try it. You know, it's very true in nature. You'll have what they call the wolf in sheep's clothing where you'll have piranhas mixing in with silver dollars or a lot of the other smaller tetras when they're, when they're small like that. And it's not unusual that even some experts are fooled because they practice mimicry where they use the coloration and the, of the fins and stuff actually look like uh, camouflage and almost identical to other harmless tetras that are swimming with them. So, so if you actually put the silver dollars in there, I think they would recognize them as probably as a similar species and not realize that they're, uh, that they're not. Now, a big thing we get in our local area is we continually get rumors of how people let their piranhas out and they hybridize with local species because, again, <laughs> someone got their toe bit by a sunfish in the summertime. Uh, and it's like, oh, they're hybridized with piranhas. What's the I truth think, to that? And then do they hybridize with anything? No, that's all Hollywood. <laughs> all Hollywood, Rob's. <laughs> it's all Hollywood. That's, 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 that's baloney. <laughs> now, they're gonna, now I have no excuse of why I got circumcised at spring break, Jimmy. Yeah, but we, if you were down in yeah. Florida, there probably wasn't a sunfish. It was now, big. now the thing, the thing is, is that there, there, there is hybridization going on in the wild, some of the species. But they're all the same species, though. Just a different coloration or, or, or a different, uh, well, for example, and I'll use the example of the Paku, because that's one of the, that's one of that's actually been hybridized by humans, where they have a, uh, I think it's a fourth species of Paku that's out there. And I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, because I don't think about them very often. But this one was actually uh, hybridized, and, and they have a whole new species that's a little bit smaller than your typical pakus, and, and they did it to, to create a, a more of a food source for people to eat. I think it's supposed to be sterilized from the young or juveniles. I don't, really, I don't really remember that much about it other than that. That's interesting. I mean, because you, you look at these people in third world countries where you want to try to feed them as cheap as possible and, and things that grow real fast. And people in this area are growing tilapia. And uh, I had a friend yeah. down about 45 miles south of me here, and he would raise tilapia. And he would send all the babies up to Canada to some big place where he was filling or raising them to adulthood. So for food yeah. and there's always somebody looking for a better way, a quicker way to feed the masses. And that would make total sense if they're trying to raise some Paku that are probably a little bit smaller and a little bit more uh, adaptable for uh, human yeah. consumption. Yeah, that's true. Hey, look, I'm going to have to give you about three more minutes on this podcast oh. and then I'm going to have to get going, but no, I was about uh, to wrap I, things up uh, as we were Frank, but yeah, any, I, I just yeah. noticed the time. Yeah. Anything uh, that we're missing any big topics we missed? No, I think you've just about covered them all. I, the only thing that uh, I've got to say that I'm, I'm really enjoying this podcast. I really enjoying talking to you all on this. In fact, this is the longest I've actually spent talking about, about piranhas in a long time. <laughs> well, Frank, we, we appreciate your time on the podcast. And uh, is there any shout outs you'd like to give to uh, something that uh, you're helping out with or? Well, well, I tell you what, this has nothing to do with piranhas, but it, it has a lot to do with, with my own personal life. And, and I hope that people that out there, if you see anyone trying to do a collection for the Kidney Foundation, I would encourage people to please donate to it. I don't have one specifically that, that I would recommend, but if, if you know anybody that has a collection going on for the Kidney Foundation, then I would, I would really hope that they would, they would contribute to it. Well, we'll make sure we get a link in the show notes. Yeah, and for myself personally, I, I'm, a, I'm a dialysis patient. I, I have what they call uh, end-stage kidney disease. So 
I go through dialysis and I'm hoping that people will, will, will contribute to a worthy cause to help other people that, that are going through it and just help out if they can. Well, I'm so sorry, Frank, and I, I appreciate your time and we'll certainly get those in the show notes. Certainly uh, consider donating. And if you're feeling adventurous, by all means, uh, don't let the, the take this lightly. Get yourself uh, starting a 125 and and uh, get yourself some, some piranha and get your feet wet <laughs> without your toes bitten. Well, I tell you what, I already got piranhas. I don't need any more. <laughs> I, bur- I can barely handle the ones that I've got. You know, they're, they're a handful to begin with. Well, Frank, thank you so much from uh, from the bottom of our heart for taking the time. I, kn- I know when you're not feeling well and stuff that this is a lot of work. And from all of us here at the, uh, the podcast, we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And we wish you well. And uh, God bless. Well, thank you a whole bunch. And, and, and God bless everybody else. And, and you all take care. I'm going to go ahead and say my bye-byes now and then head on out. Bye, Frank. And to the listeners, we'll uh, catch you guys on the next podcast. Check out the show notes. Till next time. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I thought that's how Aquarium guys got circumcised. So but we yeah. we now can confirm with science, largest blowjob of all time. <laughs>